The Gathering is a Tyler-based organization involved in fostering and maintaining Christian philanthropy around the world. In addition to running the organization, its founder publishes a weekly blog and a podcast every Thursday. To find out more, UT Tyler Radio connects with the man behind The Gathering, Fred Smith. Here's your host, Mike Landis. When we talked to you last here at UT Tyler Radio, I asked you how you would like to be remembered, and you said, as a Sunday school teacher. Now, you're that for sure, but you use scripture and literature and 21st century life as the basis for your writing and social media posts these days. That is to say, it seems like you never run out of subject matter. I hope I never run out of subject matter, but it's not like I have a plan for it. I know people that plan their sermons or their lessons or their writing a year in advance. They go away on retreats and and spend time doing that. I think I just wait for a moment, and the moment seems to always come. It's, uh, as I described it to someone, it's something of an epiphany, and and that's how it happens. And I've made a deal with myself. When uh, the epiphanies are over, then I'm done writing. So, But to date, uh, I always manage to see something or remember something or refine or edit something. And uh, when you get to my age, you That's have— That's 39, right? Uh, <laughs> 77, oh, let it be known. Okay. When you get to my age, I think you have permission to go back and dig among the archives and find things that a friend of mine calls car parts. Oh, well, nice. And, and say, you know, I probably ought to write more about that. And it's not like you're merely copying and pasting. But you're rethinking and uh, reworking because you've had a lot of life between the time you wrote that and now. So actually, uh, I would say that I'm doing more of that. The first 10 years of writing were, you know, what am I going to talk about this week? And now I'm at the stage where I'm saying I want to say more about something I was thinking about five years ago. Exactly. I, I find it fascinating to see the kinds of topics that you, you, for lack of a better term, you light upon uh, and light up, as the case may be, illuminate. Um, but you always have a way of making people think, and, and that's what I probably have liked the most about your, your Fred's blog. Uh, you said one time that uh, the highest compliment you'd ever gotten was from someone who said, I never thought about it that way before. That, that is, seems to be the goal for you in Everything you write. Yeah, I, I wish I could say it was a goal, but I've lived my life without goals. Uh, the other day I described to a group, my life has been uh, that of a trapeze artist <laughs> in that I let go of whatever I'm holding on to. And then there's that uh, somewhat anxious moment in midair, and then I'm caught. And and I think it's, it, it's not only that way in my career, uh, but I think it's that way in, in, in how I live life and how I approach things. And oftentimes I'll be working on something, whether it's a Sunday school lesson or a blog, and in the middle of it, I have this sense of letting go of whatever the preconceived notion was and giving myself permission to say, but what if it's this way? And I, I just finished reading Elon Musk's biography by Walter Isaacson, and, and I had the chance uh, to to talk to Walter at the Texas Book Fair. 
and and he was talking about you know Elon and his almost obsession with asking the question about everything why is it that way why do we assume that's true and and musk says i question everything except the rules of physics and and so it's it's a lot of fun actually to look at things either that have been written or that I've written myself and look at it with fresh eyes and say, I wonder if there's another way of thinking about that. Judging from your writing and your posts on social media, you are a voracious reader, but when do you have the time? Well, I have lots of time. I read about four hours a day. I I am two-thirds of the way through a book now that I should have put down (laughs) after the first (laughs) sentence, but I committed to read it, and by golly, I'm going to finish it. So at the end of it, you can say, that was awful. At the end of it, I can say, it's like I I walk two miles every morning. And of course, there are mornings where where it's it's not about the walk, it's about the discipline of doing it. And over the years, I felt something about reading the same way. It's not about whether I enjoy the book, but I made a commitment to finish it, and I'm going to finish it and, uh, and then probably begrudge the fact that I spent that much time on finishing it. But you, but you are trying to change that habit. I am trying to change that habit. Do we need to do an intervention? We probably do, because <laughs> I keep thinking at some point this book is going to be good or to be worth it, or I'm going to underline something. And, and I and I do. I mean, I, I underline, never give me a book to read because I'll ruin it for you. Because I underline, I make marginal notes. and um, But if I get through a book and I haven't underlined something, that I'm, I'm somewhat ashamed of myself. <laughs> well, and, and that's the truth. That's the way in which uh, most of, a, of the world consumes information these days. If you don't have them, you know, within the first few seconds or so. What is it that they say about churches, that people make a decision about what a church is like in the first five minutes from the time they walk into the, the narthex? It's even shorter than that. Um, I've done read some studies on how people choose churches. And as they walk in, and actually it's within five seconds, they really? look around and they say, this is me, this is not me. Mm. And they don't even have to wait for the music or the sermon or anything else, but they just say, this fits, this doesn't fit. It takes them less time to pick a church than it does to pick an outfit in the store. To go to church. To go to church, <laughs> right. exactly. No. You know, without putting too fine a point on the topic, let's talk about current events. A pastor friend of mine stood in the pulpit one Sunday back in the 80s, and he displayed a front page of a Sunday newspaper. It was filled with stories of evil and tragedy and maddening events. And he asked rhetorically, if the end times were coming, or were we already there? That was four decades ago, and look at the world today. Do you ever get discouraged? A friend of mine, a historian at the University of Oklahoma, said it's a sin to despair. And, and I thought about that, and I thought, oh, I don't need more sins. And, <laughs> and, but he's almost right. I don't think we have the right to despair. I, I, I told a friend once many, many years ago when he said he was cynical because he'd served on so many boards. And I said, if, if God isn't cynical, knowing all he knows— 
then I don't think I have the right to become cynical. I, I was in a boarding school, and in boarding schools, uh, and I went to a boarding school, my wife went to a boarding school, and uh, kids go to boarding schools for all kinds of interesting reasons, and, and more than a, a large percentage of them go because they have troubled lives. And, but, but the dean of students there was British, and I asked him once, I said, how do you keep from becoming cynical about students or cynical about human dynamics and all this stuff that goes on? And I figured out he knew the worst about everybody, but thought the best, because for him, there was always something redeeming in everyone. And so now, at my age, I have the benefit of looking back and saying the world didn't end when I was in high school and the Russians were steaming toward Cuba. The world didn't end when, I mean, just line up all the historical events when everybody thought the world was going to end. And then I come back to, is God sovereign or is God not sovereign? And if he is, then I don't have to worry about the end of the world because it'll come in his time. And, and so I, I, I really do believe that somewhere in the world, there's someone being born who will turn out to be a truly extraordinary person, and we will all look back and say that person had an extraordinary influence in the history of the world. There's always potential for redemption, just as there is the potential for darkness. I'll just add one more thing. I was reading J.R. Tolkien's letters which is pretty lengthy. It's about 450 pages. And, and he writes about, it's, it's a, I think it's more of a Catholic doctrine than it is a Protestant doctrine. But he writes about something called the long defeat. And, and he says there are moments of victory, small victories. There are moments of light. There are moments of progress. But on the whole, the, the world is tending toward um, a long defeat where things will eventually get terrible. And it's at that point that God will intervene. But, but he, he, he says he's hopeful, but it's intermittent hope because it, it is the, the tendency of history, the tendency of men and women is down. Even those with a passing acquaintance with world history know that terrible times have always been with us. But it feels like technology has brought us into a digital age that hasn't brought much happiness. It seems to have brought more anger and discord and isolation. What's your take on that? Well, I was just out in Silicon Valley at a three-day conference on uh, a small topic, the future of artificial intelligence. And it can be frightening. It can be overwhelming. There are any number of areas of our life that are going to be improved by artificial intelligence, and there are a number of areas of our life that are uh, going to be much, much worse. And, and I walked away from it thinking, the monks must have felt this way about the printing press, because it's going to change a lot of lives. And the printing press, and they were right, I think the monks were right when they said, think about all the evil that's going to come out of the dissemination of 
unedited information. And I think they were right in the sense that one of the great dangers of artificial intelligence is the fact that it doesn't know what's true. It only knows what has been programmed to know. And it and the potential for incredibly sophisticated and articulate and persuasive and influential misinformation is truly extraordinary. And, and, and I listened to um, a, a number of podcasts on AI at this moment, and, and one of the leaders in the development of AI is uh, a woman named Fei-Fei Lin. She's at Stanford. And, and she says that, that artificial intelligence, at least at this point, can only reflect human values. It, it has no machine values. It hasn't, it hasn't begun to program itself. And so she says that has great potential for harm and great potential for good as well. So I've used, uh, just as a, as a parlor trick, I've used chat GPT. Uh, for Sunday school lessons, so so I'll type in a, a text, and of course with with uh, Chat GPT, as it is with anything when you're dealing with artificial intelligence, what really matters is the prompt you use. Mm-hmm. How accurate is it? So I prompt it with write me a thousand word Sunday school lesson on a given text, and reflecting the voice of Ernest Hemingway. And within a second and a half, a thousand words on that text comes back in the voice of Ernest Hemingway. I, I, uh, one of the participants in, in the conference on AI was Dr. Francis Collins, who uh, was the head of the Human Genome Project. And, and, of course, medical research and all of that area is going to be hugely influenced and affected by artificial intelligence. And he spent three days with us talking about, you know, the potential for artificial intelligence in the field of health and genetics and, and all of that. So at the end of it, um, I thought, well, I really need to write Francis a, a thank you note. So I typed into chat GPT. Please write Francis a thank you note for these three things that he did for us while we were together. But I want it in sonnet form, and I also want it in his voice. And within a second and a half, there was a sonnet thanking Francis in Francis's own words because AI had gone and scraped the internet and read everything that Francis has ever written and put it in his words, and I read it to him. <laughs> now, that's a parlor trick. Oh, uh, yeah, but it's but, a but darn good one. Every 20 minutes, this field is advancing. And like I said, and I, I think everyone knows, great potential for good. I know that they talk about people putting out a job, being put out of jobs, and Elon Musk and, and Larry Page and Peter Thiel and some others think that it, it spells the end of of the human experience. Let me ask you this. Doesn't it seem like AI is a little bit like a chainsaw? It can cut a cord of wood to keep you warm in the winter, but it can cut your leg off. Yeah. It's like any technology. I mean, any technology that we've developed is dependent 
on our use of it. Now, there are some, you know, some people talk, and a lot of science fiction is this, and I read science fiction as, as most boys did, and and this sense of creating something that ultimately becomes like, you know, Space Odyssey, you know, know how, I can't do that. C.S. Lewis talks about it. There is no true creation. There's only a reorganization and a reflection of what already is. So when people say, oh, it's the Tower of Babel, and, uh, you know, we're trying to build ourselves up in the gods, and they're going to destroy us and everything else, I think it's technology, and it can. It is a chainsaw. It can be used for good or for ill. Hard to know if modern men and women are any angrier in their day-to-day lives than at other times in history, but social media and the evening news are filled with story after story of people just going off on one another, many times physically. Do you find that people are more angry these days? Is it frustration? Is it post-pandemic? Or do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, I have a, a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to is with Scott Galloway and, and Kara Swisher. It's called Pivot. And um, Scott was talking about the people that he meets on Twitter are completely different from the people he meets in person. And and he can you know be having a conversation with somebody in person that's civil and collegial and humane and everything else and then turn around and that same person on Twitter is a monster because there there is almost the the release of anger that is pent up because of 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 constraints social constraints but there's also the encouragement of anger by social media one of the things I'm on the board of the East Texas Health Foundation and one of the projects that we're working on is adolescent mental health. And one of the, the, the most serious causes of, of depression among teenagers is social media. And whether it is the anger that is not only expressed but encouraged, or, or it's the bullying that is encouraged, whatever it is, the, the Surgeon General came out recently this year with a whole paper on how social media is, is the new tobacco. And that unless we do something about the, the addiction to social media, we are going to be in a similar situation as we were with secondary cancer and and. There has to be something done about it. So um, Jonathan Haidt, who does a, a lot of writing about sociology, and uh, his his last book was called The Righteous Mind, is writing a new book, and it's going to be called The Anxious Generation. And he and Karen Twenge, and who's another researcher in San Diego, they're, they're writing this book, and it is all about the well-researched effects of social media on adolescence, and it is frightening. And so one of the things that we're working on here in Tyler is how do we do something, what's the intervention point around the use of social media by by adolescents, by starting with kids and 
the eighth grade, even though kids in the fourth grade and fifth grade are are getting their phones and even third graders are beginning to go up to their parents' television and, you know, just hit the screen as if it were a large computer. But, uh, you know, so there are things like phone-free schools, which uh, sometimes people think that everyone would be resistant to. But in fact, uh, parents are looking for someone who will help them control uh, what their kids are seeing on social media, the movement toward dumb phones. Uh, But social media for kids, uh, again, it could be a really good thing. But what they're finding is instead of – they're developing friendships. They're simply developing friends and followers. And you walk down the hall of a school today or sit in the lunchroom and they are not talking to each other. They are there, they are present, but they are detached and removed. And, and, and so it's going to be very unpopular. I have a friend who's a game designer in, in Seattle and he told me, he said, we design them to be addictive. And I was at Meta, uh, Facebook, their headquarters, a couple of weeks ago in Silicon Valley, and had the same conversation. Is this intentionally designed to be addictive? And they said, absolutely, it's the business model. So it's no different than smoking. It's no different than alcohol. It's no different than fentanyl. It is designed to be addictive, and you reap the whirlwind. ATFSM, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and social social media. media. Yeah, that's crazy. You're a man of faith who teaches and helps empower others to spread Christian gospel and values. Do you ever get discouraged sometimes with your faith and where the church, anybody's church, is going these days? Yeah, I I do. In fact, I posted something yesterday. Um, I was driving to Dallas for a meeting, and there's a billboard right past uh, the first rest stop that you reach um, on the way to to Dallas, and it's been there for quite a while. and And it's a a terrific simplification, oversimplification of the gospel. And in fact, it even has. A, a child's block that says, A, you know, do this, B, do this, C, do this, and you're done. I, I mean, th- that's the gospel. And, and it started me thinking, as a lot of things start me thinking, about a quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes. He said, uh, I would not give you a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity but I would give you everything I own for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And I think what we've done is, and part of it is because people's attention span is, is, is radically different than it used to be, but I think it's also because we have so simplified things in order to market what we believe that that we we've we we've made it untrue and there are things in life that are very complex and and what we've done is that somebody's got 5 seconds before they decide whether or not this message is for them or not 
And so we've taken this this highly superficial marketing approach to either the gospel or doctrine or Bible study. We take little snippets out. I saw a thing the other day. It was using this this verse out of Philippians where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they had turned it into something that was, I thought, more useful. It said, I can do all things through Scripture that is taken out of context. <laughs> and, and that's exactly right, because we have, we have turned discipline, we have turned maturity into refrigerator magnets and bumper stickers and— and why are we surprised when when we've created generations of people who are not only incapable of thinking about theology, but are actually resistant or angry at at people who say it's more complicated than that? It's there are shades of gray there, and so it it and it has to be simple, and as Americans, it has to be utilitarian. I have to be able to apply it to my life immediately, and it has to be positive. So I, I looked up for a lesson once. What are the what are the seven most popular Bible verses for American Christians? And as you might guess, every one of those verses is kind of positive expectation. So I can do all things through Christ, or um, everything works together for good, or and completely taken out of context and nothing about suffering, nothing about discipline, nothing about a long obedience in the same direction, but just it has to be practical, has to be quick, and it has to be actually profitable. Yeah. Catchy. 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 Yeah, exactly. It says so in my coffee cup, so it must be true. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of our life is that way. And so a lot of our church is that way. I was talking to somebody the other day. They said, you know, I went to church and I feel like the front end was a concert and the back end was a TED talk. <laughs> well, I mean, there is true. And because you are chosen and highly favored. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Another verse. That's probably number 11. Yeah, exactly. Although that's from the gospel according to... Uh, <laughs> That guy down in Houston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, children of the king. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? Oh, just how nice it is to be with you and to talk about these things. Um, we don't get much chance to, to actually talk about these things because either our lives are so busy or we're just passing in the hall or nobody like you says, what do you think about and fill in the blank? But it's, it's mostly uh, – our being afraid to lose a friendship over an issue that has become the dividing line between people who used to be friends, used to be family. And and so the opportunity to just sit here like this, whether it's recorded or not, is a privilege, and I'm grateful for it. I have to say that uh, I have described you many times to friends as a He's the kind of guy that you'd like to be sitting next to on a plane or go have a beer with. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've never tasted bourbon in my life. And, you know, I've always been limited to beer and wine, but I was in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, at, I, I was given the task of interviewing Wendell Berry, which is 
difficult. Let me just put it that way. There was another guy from Louisville who who said, uh, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Well, Wendell Berry floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. But part of the experience was was bourbon tasting. And I have to say, after after tasting three or four bourbons, I, I thought there's a future in this. <laughs> and, and so maybe it's, it's it's the guy you'd like to sit next to on the plane or go out and 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 have a shot of bourbon. Thanks for listening to UT Tider Radio Connects with Fred Smith, the founder of The Gathering. For a transcript of this episode, visit our website, uttiderradio.org. To be notified of future episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For Mike Landis, I'm Jeff Johnson. Thanks for listening to UT Tider Radio Connects from UT Tider Radio 99.7 FM.